0: The Rocket looks for a hole. If he gets to the outside this time, he's gone. Goodbye. The Rocket delivers the million-dollar man. Provides cause for celebration among the Toronto Argonaut owners at 87 You are listening to Rouge Reacher. White and Blue, a proud member of the Canadian Football Podcast Network. Welcome to the Bruce Wright Blue CFL podcast. My name's Oz Davis, I'm the co-host of the show, and normally I'd be introducing my fellow co-host, Joe Pritchard. But on this episode of the Rouge Wright Blue, we're going to do things slightly differently and instead present to you an extensive interview with Paul Woods, author of the book, Year of the Rocket. John Candy, Wayne Gretzky, A Crooked Tycoon, and The Crazy Season in Football History due to be released in the first week of September. What follows is that interview, and next week, we'll be back to do the usual predicting and grousing about our favorite CFL teams. Enjoy. Paul Woods, Arthur historian. thanks for joining us on the Bruce Wright Blue CFL Podcast. Well, thanks very much for having me, gentlemen. Paul, can you give us a sort of a rundown of your own history as a CFL fan, and how did you get the inspiration to actually write Year of the Rock?
1: Well, thanks for the question. I, uh, I of course, I grew up in Canada. I grew up in London, Ontario, which is about two hours uh, west of Toronto. Um, uh, it's also about two hours uh, far from Detroit, so it's kind of in the middle of the two the two cities, and that was where the, all the pro sports was happening when I was when I was a kid. Um, my dad grew up in Guelph, which is about halfway between London and Toronto. And he was a big Argo fan. Um, And I didn't actually follow sports for about the first 10 years of my life. I just wasn't really into sports as a kid, but, but around 1968 um, I became a huge fan of the Argonauts, the Toronto Argonauts. Um, And the reason for that was, well, part of it was my dad liked the team. And so they were naturally, the games were on and stuff like that. But, but I also, they were a cool team. I was, I was, this is so 1968, I would have been 10 years old. And I grew up sort of in that generation that, you know, we saw the Beatles, I saw the Beatles on ed sullivan and i wanted long hair even my parents wouldn't let me have long hair and stuff and and uh the argos were the first adults i'd seen anywhere that other than musicians other than people like the Beatles, that had long hair they had a team full of renegades back in the in the late 60s under the head coach leo cahill they had guys with hair sticking out the back of their helmets which is you know now we see guys with dreadlocks down to their ass right but in in 1968 guys with with a little bit of hair curling out the back that was very unusual and to a 10 year old kid very cool uh and i loved that i fell in love with the argos color scheme the double blue colors uh just the whole renegade thing they were just a really interesting team full of people that were not like my dad at all even though some of them weren't that far off my dad's age but they didn't seem like my dad they seemed like cool dudes uh and so i became a fan then um About a decade later, so right around the beginning of 1977, for reasons that I've never quite understood, I just got this idea. I was in university by then. I got this idea, you know, if you're going to be a fan of something, you should be serious about it. You should be really dedicated. Uh, And so I made this kind of pact with myself that I I was going to become a fanatically interested and involved fan of the Argonauts. To the point where I was going to like clip every story out of the newspapers and make scrapbooks. And I was going to, you know, just watch or listen to every game. In those days, a lot of the games were blacked out. And so you could only see like the road games, but I was just determined. I was going to, I was going to almost like sort of document the team every day, every step of the way, every day. And so I began doing that. I began, you know, getting three papers a day, three newspapers a day and clipping out every story. And I, first of all, I actually started building scrapbooks, like pasting the stories in and that. And pretty quickly that got way beyond me. The the volume of paper became massive. Uh, But I, and you know, the stupid thing is like here I am 45 years later and I'm still, still doing it. Like I, I've got now, I don't know, maybe three dozen bankers boxes full of newspaper clippings. Going back to 1977, and some of them in more recent years are more organized and more cataloged. Some of the old stuff is is pretty much junk. I mean, a little a little story about you know who's who's not dressing at defensive end this week is kind of useless. But there's also a massive amount of treasures within that. So I became serious about it then. Uh, I, I I you know back in in the day, I mean, we're talking now in the early 80s. You know, VCRs were expensive, and I had to like you know wait a couple of years before I could afford my first VCR and as soon as I got a VCR I started taping Argo games and I've been doing that ever since and now they're all digitized and I've got hundreds and hundreds of games on DVD you know and and so and I just followed the team really closely ever since I worked in journalism for 40 plus years and uh, I was fortunate I, I tell people I was fortunate that I didn't have to cover the Argos very often so I was able to stay a fan you know I, there were times I had did I have had to cover a few Argo games over the years mostly my, my job in journalism was in, as an editor or a newsroom manager so I wasn't I wasn't a frontline reporter all that often but I was for a few years and I did have to cover some Argo games and, you know, I had to like follow the follow the guidelines, no cheering in the press box, no, just cover it dispassionately report on what happened. Uh, And that that caused me a couple of a couple of intriguing experiences that I may or may not talk to you about during the course of this discussion. But so that's kind of my story. I mean, and I and and then to the second part of your question, um, and I'll try to make it as quick as I can, because I'm I'm just blabbing on here. I, I left a job I'd been at Canadian Press, which is the Canada's national news agency, the equivalent of the Associated Press. I'd been there for 30 plus years, uh, and back in 2011 there was a change of ownership of the organization, and and I got packaged out. I was I was a senior executive at that point. Uh, they didn't need me anymore. They, they gave me a very nice package to leave, and so and I was at that time I was still sort of in my early 50s, and I thought you know I'm still young. I got I got uh, I get energy. I'm going to do something else. I don't know what. And one day I was out on a bike ride where I often do my best thinking when my my legs are just pumping and I'm just kind of daydreaming and drifting along. And I got this idea. I said, you know, I've always wanted to read a book about the 1983 Argonauts, which was sort of my favorite team as a young man. It was the first team I had. I'd seized a ticket starting in 81 and 83 was the year they finally broke a 31 year drought to win the Grey Cup. I said, so I'd love to read a book about that and no one's ever going to do it. So I'll do it. And being, being having journalistic skills, I, I was able to do it. I, you know, I interviewed dozens of people associated with the team, players, coaches, and others, and put a book put a book out in twenty thirteen called "Bouncing Back uh, from National Joke to Grey Cup Champs," which told the story of the Argos going from the worst year in team history in eighty one to the Grey Cup end of the Grey Cup drought in eighty three with many of the same players that were there for the worst. Uh, and so that led me to think geez you know maybe I should do another one and I sort of had in the back of my mind the 91 team as much as I loved 83 uh, and that's that team's always going to have a real special place in my heart but 91 was the most crazy wild unbelievable season in Argo history and they've been around for almost 150 years and there's never been a year like 91 so that was that was my plan and uh, in between those two things, I actually got a contract to, to I got I got commissioned to write a book, uh, a, a corporate history. And I said, I'm going to sock the money away from that into the fund that'll pay for me to do the research on this one. So now I've written this book called uh, Year of the Rocket uh, comes out next week. It, it's a, the story of the 91 Argos. And it's a crazy, crazy story, man.
2: So, so the first book was bouncing back uh, was about the 83 Argos. And then the yep. second one is about the 91 Argos, maybe just to set things up here and to tell us how we got there. Uh, what, sh- what, what was kind of the timeline of the change between the 83 team all the way up to 91. I mean, we got a couple different, a o- couple ownership changes. We have a huge TV deal yep. change, which changed the dynamics of the finances in the league. Yes, it did. You're going from one era to another within a decade.
1: Yeah, and, it, and it's actually, it's stunning how different they were in some ways, uh, Joe. I mean, the, uh, you know, 83 was arguably maybe the pinnacle of Canadian football in some ways. I mean, that was the, they had the richest TV contract they ever had. I think it ran between 83 and 85 and it was basically it was it was it was awarded in 82 or 83 based largely on the fact that there was a ton of interest in Canadian football in all the big markets like Montreal, Toronto and Vancouver, Vancouver got its dome stadium OBC place opened in 83. Um, the the 82 great cup was played in Toronto in a gigantic driving rainstorm so so rainy that day that the the politicians in the in both the city of Toronto and the and the province of Ontario decided we got to get a dome stadium and so that was the impetus for what became SkyDome uh, took it didn't open till 89 it took 7 years for the thing to get you know planned and built uh, but it was all mostly because of of having this this crazy uh, waterlogged grey cup in '82. Um, the 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 CFL was 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 a huge part of Canadian uh, uh, Canadian culture in the '70s. It was you know it was the 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 Leargos were as big as the Toronto Maple Leafs basically in the Toronto market in the late '70s. They 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 you you guys may or may not remember that they they back in those days. The two teams, Montreal Alouettes and Toronto Argonauts, could and sometimes did outbid the NFL for, for big name players. Uh, the Argos got Joe Theismann out of Notre Dame in 71. He'd been the runner up for the Heisman trophy and and was a really big name in us college football. Uh, the Argos got, they, they, they stole Terry Metcalf away from the St. Louis Cardinals in 77. He was the NFL's leader in all purpose yardage in 76. And he got, he was a free agent and the NFL didn't really like free agents and signed free agents back then. He came to the CFL and signed with the Argos for a big money deal in 76 the Argos had signed this guy named Anthony Davis who was like the, the replacement for OJ Simpson at USC he was a big name running back one game for USC against Notre Dame he'd scored six touchdowns in a nationally televised game for Southern Cal uh, he came to the Argos in 76 and that was such a big deal that they had like 50,000 fans at an, at an interest squad game at Exhibition Stadium Uh, they had, you know, the Argos averaged 45 to 47,000 fans per game from 77 to 79. The Alouettes opened Olympic stadium in 76 when the Montreal Olympics were played. And they, they had a game against Toronto in 77 that had 69,000 people for a regular season game. It's never been topped since. Um, so it was a big deal back then. And there was this huge amount of demand among Argo fans are we ever going to win? Because they, you know, they they gone. They hadn't won since '52. They're in the biggest city in Canada, and but the, not only did they not win the great Cup, but they lost. They lost like they they screwed things up in embarrassing ways every friggin' year, right? They, there, there were literally there was one year when they would get in the playoffs on the last game of the season if they just lost the game by 15 points, but they lost by 16 points. Like that kind of stuff happened every friggin' season. And, and so there was this, like people in Toronto, they, I call them in the book from national joke to great cup champs. They were like a national joke. You know, there were stories written in national magazines about how embarrassing are the Argonauts. Um, and, and they, the fans were really, you know, like they, they, they love to hate them. They love to go out there and boo them, which used to drive me crazy. I started going to Argo games in, in 77, even when I was living in London, I went to a few games each year and they, You know, I would I would be I would be aghast that like their kickers and the Anderson would come on to try a field goal and the whole stadium would start booing. And I'm thinking, like, he's not going to kick the field goal to get boo the guy. What the hell? Right. It was like they wanted them to fail, but they also wanted them to win. And so they finally got good. So they were they were the worst team ever in 81. They got good in 82. It got a good and entertaining they had the run and shoot offense with mouse davis and they suddenly became the most entertaining team i'd ever seen in football to that point and then 83 they actually won the gray cup and in ret- retrospect that wasn't a good thing because interest fell off immediately afterwards it was like okay finally we've won now we can start following the blue jays who came along in 77 but we're getting competitive by 83 and so I think a whole generation of Argo fans kind of fell away after 83. Part of it was that the, they, had a, they had very bad ownership. They were owned by one of Canada's three, three biggest breweries, the number three brewery at the time, Carling O'Keefe. But Carling O'Keefe, for better or worse, did not want to spend a dime on marketing. And so they did nothing to market the team throughout the 1980s, while the Blue Jays were incredibly smart at marketing to young families and kids and BJ Birdie, the mascot, and all that stuff. And so the Argos won the great cup in 83 attendance went down in 84 and it just kept sinking and sinking and sinking through the rest of the eighties. While meanwhile, the CFL was going through really hard times, those same Alouettes who drew 69,000 fans to a game in 77 by 87, they folded on the night before the season was supposed to start. Um, and in 85, the Calgary Stampeders were this close to going out of business. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders, who are the cash machine of Canadian football now, they had to hold telethons to raise enough money to keep going from year to year back then. So the league went from the highs of the late 70s to deep, deep lows in the late 80s. And then 91, all of a sudden, here come these saviors, Bruce McNall, John Candy, and Wayne Gretzky to buy the team. And it was supposed to be the magic bullet and for a while with the Argos, it kind of was, but it didn't last. I mean, that's, that's kind of the context for where we were. And, it's, and I, I'll, I'll add one more thought and then I'll, and I'll shut up and let you guys ask some questions and talk. But they had this, I mean, this crazy thing happened in 91 where the Argos first game under the new ownership. They just, you know, these, these new guys to come in, famous owners, most famous Canadians of all time, arguably in Wayne Gretzky and John Candy and Bruce McNall, who everybody thought was this, was this wealthy guy with a Midas touch. And they've signed the Rockets, Rocket Ismail, and everything looked incredible. And their first game of the season is in Ottawa. And four weeks later, the Ottawa Rough Riders declared bankruptcy, right? Like this was going on at the same time. So it was a, it was a very weird uh, environment with, with all this stuff happening simultaneously. And the Argos, the new ownership was meant to be the beginning of the salvation for the league. And obviously, it, it didn't quite go that way. But it also it didn't die. So they helped keep it alive in some ways.
2: Certainly it did. So the league's trucking along in 1990. uh, And then all of a sudden the McNall candy Gretzky group gets involved and all of a sudden things change on a dime, but they were looking to get, they were looking really to find a way to push the Argos and the CFL and find a marketable star. And they thought they had found one, but why, but what, what, what was the problem there?
1: Well, they, so they, when, when McNall came in, his, his statement to his executives was, think big. And of course, McNall was famous for thinking big, right? I mean, he, got, he bought a piece of the LA Kings in 86. Two years later, he got control of the LA Kings, and he somehow managed to get Wayne Gretzky out of Canada, right? Wayne Gretzky the greatest hockey player of all time, playing for the Edmonton Oilers. They win four Stanley Cups in five seasons, and Bruce acquires them. And suddenly hockey, which had been in LA for, tw- for 20 years and had never made an impact in the market, became a big, big deal. You got Wayne Gretzky in, in town and you got Magic Johnson and Wayne Gretzky was as big or bigger than Magic Johnson at that time. Uh, they turned they turned California and the whole Southern US in some ways onto hockey by bringing in the biggest player of all time. So Bruce had the same idea. So he says to his executives, think big. And, and Mike McCarthy, who was the general manager he was inherited by Bruce. He'd been there the year before, but he was a very good general manager. He had been watching the the Orange Bowl on, on New Year's Day, and he'd seen the Rocket almost win the game with an amazing kick return in the last minute. They got called back by a penalty, but otherwise would have won Notre Dame in the game and possibly the national championship. And he'd done that a few times in big games. He'd had big kick returns prior to that in college. He was a big star, reputed to be the number one pick of the NFL draft that year. And McCarthy phones up one of Bruce's executives and said, I got you want to think, Bay. I got an idea for you. Let's go after Rocket Ismail. And Bruce's eyes lit up. He loved the idea. And, you know, it took some doing. They had to to massively overpay him to get him, but they brought him up to, to play for the Argos. And he delivered on the field that first year. And we can talk about how that year went. But by the end of the year, he was the best receiver in the league. And he hadn't really caught many passes at Notre Dame. He'd been a kick returner primarily. Uh, But by the end of the year, he was a, he was an unbelievable weapon and he scored the touchdown that won the gray cup and and was one of the most iconic touchdowns we were ever going to see in this league, but he wasn't what they needed him to be off the field. They needed him to be the Wayne Gretzky of Canadian football, the Wayne Gretzky of the Toronto Argonauts, turn the whole country on to football, the way Wayne turned Southern California and the Southern us on to hockey And maybe even get interest in the U.S. and help us get a TV deal in the U.S. and all of that stuff. And Rocket was a shy kid from a small town in Pennsylvania who did not like talking to the press and any of that stuff. He was not well suited for. He just was not suited to be the Wayne Gretzky. He was great on the field, but he was not what they needed him to be off the field. And so the plan failed and it's really their fault. They did not do the proper due diligence to figure out if this guy could do it or not. They just, they just, they sort of saw him. They they saw going to be the first pick in the NFL draft. Great nickname, good looking guy, fantastic player, huge following because he has been at Notre Dame. Let's do it. And nobody like interviewed him and tried to figure out, can he answer questions from journalists? Is he going to be comfortable in the spotlight? He was not comfortable in the spotlight.
2: No, because the uh, the alternative for it, had they've done that due diligence, was he was probably going to be the number one overall selection in the NFL draft going to the Dallas Cowboys. Now, mind you, they had a few other marketable stars around them that might have taken some of the pressure off. But when you drop him into a situation where he is the guy, uh, you got to kind of figure out if he can handle that role.
1: Yeah, well, and it's worth remembering that, I mean, the the originally, the pick was originally owned by the New England Patriots.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, You know, everybody thinks of the Patriots as this dominant force for the last two decades, but they were the worst team in the NFL in in 90. And and they owned the first pick and Rocket got into some meetings with with members of the Patriots management team. And one, one executive in particular made a comment that he construed as racist. And that sure did not help their cause. Uh, And meanwhile, McNall is flashing a lot of money around and talking about, we're going to buy his marketing rights and all this stuff. Uh, And so meanwhile, New England trades the pick to Dallas. There's a great story in my book uh, about uh, there's an, there was an executive at the time he's, he's dead now, but there, he was an executive for the Cowboys guy named Bobby Ackles, who had for years been the general manager of the BC Lions before he went to the NFL And of course, Adam Rita, who was the Argos head coach in 1990, had been an assistant coach with the BC Lions when Bobby Ackles was there in the 80s. And Bob Ackles called Adam Rita and said, what's this garbage I hear about you guys going after the rocket? How are you going to afford that? And Rita basically said to him, look, I know I got nothing to do with the money side, but I'm telling you, these owners have enough hair up their ass that they're going to make this happen. You better be ready. And sure enough, they did.
2: Yeah, and it's not often that Jerry Jones doesn't get what he wants when it comes to throwing money around.
1: Right. Yeah. And and you know, the fact is they articles paid, they paid more than they needed to. They like the the, the the cowboys drafted um Russell Maryland, I think, instead as the number one overall pick. And they paid him, they paid him something like uh seven and a half million over five years or something like that. Something that was, you know, the previous year, I think Jeff George had been the first pick in the NFL draft, and he'd made something like Two million per year or something. They paid. They paid Rocket four and a half million. They paid him way more than than NFL was paying. Any but Joe Montana wasn't making that kind of money. He was the Super Bowl champion, right? Um, they overpaid, to, and that was the only way they were going to get him basically was to overpay him because they knew. If he comes up here, he's not going to be endorsing you know, Pepsi on national U.S. TV. And he, you know, he might get a Reebok deal, but it's going to be in a market that's one-tenth the size of the U.S. So they basically had to buy out his marketing rights. They paid up front for the money that, they, that he could have theoretically made by, by endorsing products had he gone to the NFL. Um, and he, had, he got the money up front. He literally got paid before the season started, uh, at which immediately put the Argos in a position where there's no way they could break even that year
2: no but uh, they they were looking for they were looking for something to get the to, to light a spark but the offense that they had in place was already lighting sparks all over the place it sounds like oh
1: absolutely oh yeah it, the night the, uh, it's funny it's ironic in a way that the books about the 91 argos and and that crazy magical year but i do get in a little bit into 1990 and in fact the 1990 argonauts had what I believe is the greatest offense Canadian football has ever seen. I mean, they were unbelievable that year. They scored 689 points. They, they, Their, their head coach, Don Matthews, came into the season saying, we're going to average 40 points a game. And that's an outlandish promise to make in football. And they came close. They were 38.3 points a game. They put up 70 in a game, which is the second highest total in history. They put up 68 points in another game, and 59 and 49 and 60. Like, they, they just poured on the, the points, except, again, the winnipeg blue Bombers, so they couldn't score against and that's the only reason they didn't get to the gray cup so and 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 you know the other crazy thing is that that offense that record-setting offense with the most points in history did it with much of the year with their second and third and sometimes even fourth string quarterback matt Dunigan, who they brought in in 1990 who was the marquee quarterback in canadian football at that time through the late 80s he was the man they brought him in in 90 he just kept getting hurt And so they ended up with you know they go to the second stringer John Conjemi for a while. John's now doing college football broadcasts in the states. Uh, He gets hurt, and they 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 pluck Ricky Foggy off the BC Lions practice roster, and they and they hand their Foggy the ball after like one practice, and he throws three touchdown passes in the fourth quarter of a lost cause game, and then he starts lighting it up. You know later that year, Dunnigan gets hurt again, and in one of those crazy high scoring games, Ricky Foggy threw seven touchdown passes, which would which was one short of the CFL record. And he ran for a hundred yards himself. Like what kind of a, how do you, what kind of an offense has a quarterback with seven touchdown passes and a hundred yards rushing, man, it was, it was unbelievable. So then you add the rocket to that, right? Like it was, it looked like it was going to be a real fun year and it certainly was.
2: Yeah. So it did. So it did. uh, Obviously he was going into a place where there were a lot of weapons around him and a lot of people that could help, help him out. Um, but it seemed like the offense ended up being geared toward him in some ways.
1: Uh, Yes and no. I mean, you know, as I said, like as, as the season went on, he became much more a part of the offense in the, in the first four games. I think he only caught four passes um uh and he really was he was kind of mostly a kick returner and he was they would try him on some some sweeping run plays and doing sort of gadgety stuff but he really wasn't a big part of the offense at first but gradually over the course of that year he got better at, at, at running patterns and and using his speed which i i actually do think he i believe he was the fastest man we've ever seen in canadian football I mean, you watch the very first his very first big play in Canadian football, which came in his first game was a a reverse on a punt return. And man, he is just flying. Like it is unbelievable how fast he's running. so but by the end of the year, he was he was kind of the focal point offensively, although but, you know, they they did have a lot of weapons right there and they used him. I mean, they Daryl K. Smith was their primary receiver. And 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 in, in 1990, he had he had had eighteen hundred yards and twenty touchdown receptions. And in 1991, he had thirteen hundred and some odd yards. He had he had a he had a little bit more yardage than Rocket had. Um, he was still the guy that they would throw to when it was time for a really big, big catch uh, or a touchdown. Down. Uh, and then they acquired this guy, David Williams, who was a huge target, who'd been the CFL's most outstanding player in 88 with the BC Lions and had a real connection, a chemistry with Matt Dunigan. They got him late in the season and he became an like, gigantic weapon. And of course, in 1990, they had, uh, they had pinball Clemens emerge from nowhere to be the greatest player, greatest season any player had ever had, arguably 3,300, all purpose yards. He was named the league's most outstanding player went on to an unbelievable career with the Argos where he was, the, he's, he's now unquestionably be the greatest Argonaut of all time. Uh, he was, a you know, great cups as a coach, as a, as a player, he's now the general manager. He's an amazing, amazing figure in Canadian football. So he was a the weapon there as well. Uh, uh, so Rocket really wasn't the man. In '92, they tried to build the offense around Rocket, and it's pretty hard to build the offense around a wide receiver, right? You're just not going to be able to get him enough touches to make him the focal point, and that was part of what went wrong in '92. Uh, but yeah, he was a very important weapon. And as you go, if you look at the down the stretch in '91. He game after game he was making big plays 87 yard touchdown 72 yard touchdown 65 yard touchdown he became he became the guy as, as that season was going on I was thinking to myself man he is now the best receiver in the league uh and and like there's no way we're going to be stopped and of course they did win the Great Cup although it wasn't easy
2: No no because of course because of course uh cold weather can be a great uh, limiter of offenses when it comes to that sort of Thing. And it happened to be the first great cup in Winnipeg.
1: Yes, it was the first great cup in Winnipeg when Winnipeg is, a, of course, in the middle of the prairies. It's a cold weather city. Um, it was uh, and it was cold that day. Uh, of course, we we record temperatures in Celsius, not Fahrenheit up here, but it was bone chillingly cold. Um Uh, the coldest gray cup of all time, in my opinion. And there's no way of actually verifying that there've been a few other cold ones over the years, but those who were there could not believe beer, beer was freezing in, 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 in solo cups, right? Like you would turn into a, turn into a slushy and then it would just freeze. Um, And, and yeah, that, that became a bit of an equalizer to some extent the the people, the players told me, one player told me that when you get tackled, it was like being dropped out of a 10, 10 foot from a 10 foot, Uh, height because it was, the the turf was, of course, in those days, AstroTurf was just rock hard anyway. And then you you add it to freezing and it's just ridiculous. Um, There was a great, there's a great story in the book about how, uh, uh, you know, one player came up poked his head out of the locker room before the game and there was not a single player on the field warming up. Like Everybody was too cold. We're not, we're not going out there to warm up for this game. Um, and, and of course, and you were playing the game with Matt Dunnigan, who had, had a broken collarbone as playing quarterback. Uh, which is another huge part of the story, right? I mean, it's not just Rocket and McNall and Gretzky and Candy. There's this—the legend of Matt Dunigan is an unbelievable tale. Uh, most heroic performance I think we're ever going to see in a Grey Cup. A guy the week before broke his collarbone in two two places, and he goes out and guts it out for for a Grey Cup win, and he throws two long touchdown passes somehow. Unbelievable.
2: Yeah. So so the beer so the beer turning in turning into slushies and getting rock hard ends up becoming a part of the story as well.
1: Yes, it does. That's the, 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 the most famous beer can toss in Canadian history, right? Like, so Rockets coming up the field. It, it's just to set the scene here. It's, it's, it's the fourth quarter. Calgary has just scored a touchdown to make it a one-point game. It's now 22-21, and the Stampeders have all the momentum. The Argos are getting nothing going on offense. They only had seven first downs the whole game. Matt was gutting it out, but he couldn't. He couldn't connect on his, with the receivers very much. Um, and and so it's 22-21. Calvary scored, time for kickoff. The ball comes down to the Rocket. They they the, the Argos set the play that Rocket's going to return this. They didn't didn't actually it came in to Daryl K. Smith who on coach's instructions said to, just turned around and yelled at Rocket, "You, you, you!" and Rocket went over and grabbed the bouncing ball and they and he and he raced up the sidelines and scored the touchdown and as he's about to cross the goal and he's at about the 5-yard line something comes out of the stands and almost hits him it comes really close to hitting him hitting in the legs. Uh, and on the broadcast, Don Whitman, the CBC play-by-play guy on the replay said, a snowball almost hit him, but it was no snowball. It was a frozen can of beer. That got tossed from one of the one of the, the rowdier sections in Winnipeg Stadium. Uh, and part of my quest in telling this story was to find the guy that threw the beer. He'd never been identified before. Uh, no one really had ever said much about it after it happened, although it does that it, that, that highlight is going to go down forever on those, you know, those craziest plays of all times videos uh and and so I set about to try to find the guy and I think I did I mean I I can't prove it I can't I can't corroborate this there's no evidence after 30 years but all the things that I heard from him and from other people that I spoke to lead me to believe that that was the guy that threw it and it came really close to beaming the rocket on what was basically the game-clinching gray cup right or game game-clinching touchdown so it's a crazy story that's for sure just adds to the whole thing
2: yep so so they're just so at the they're at the top of the world at the end of 91 everything's looking great sure the the pocketbooks are a little bit light because they're paying rockets so much money but things are uh, things are going to keep going up right Nothing's gonna it's not gonna end up it's not gonna end up terribly is it
1: well that's what that's what I assumed at the time, and that's what I think most people in the public would have assumed at the time. What what I found out in doing research for the book and speaking to people involved in, at all levels, in players, coaches, executives, owners, and so on, was that management, particularly on the financial side, was already worried before the end of the 91 season about we can not going to make this work, because they had been banking on You know, the big three owners coming in, signing the rocket, having a really phenomenal team and filling Skydome, which which had 54,000 seats for football. But they didn't do that. They had 41,000 for the first game, which was a great crowd by Argo standards back then. But then all the other crowds after that were in the 30s until the Eastern final, the game that got them to the great cup. They did get 50,000 for that game, but they they did not take in the revenue that they expected or needed to take in. And, and their, Brian Cooper, who was their, their uh, chief, uh, exe- chief executive officer and, and uh, uh, VP of uh, operations or something, um, he had warned them when they'd, when they'd been thinking about buying the team because he knew Gretzky. He'd known Gretzky for a decade. And Gretzky called and said, what do you think? And Cooper had said, I think this is a tough market. I, th- th- my friends are not following the Argos. They're following the NFL and the Blue Jays. And I think this is a big, long-term build. Uh, I wouldn't even do it if I were you guys. And they ignored the advice and and bought in. Uh, And then uh, Cooper, you know, gets ready for the next year. And and he gets told by executives in Los Angeles where McNall was based, we got to raise ticket prices. And he said, no, it's way too early. This market's not ready for this. And sure enough, they raised the prices and, you know, sales went down. And this, this sad historical pattern that's been the case ever since 83 is that the Argos win the Grey Cup and their sales go down the next year. It's the weirdest thing. And Toronto's got to be the only market in the world where you win the championship and you get fewer fans the next season. Happened in, in 84 after the 83. It happened in 92 after 91. It's happened virtually every time they've won the Grey Cup since then. Um, so they things did go, go south the next year. And unfortunately, they went south off the field. They... Matt Dunnigan was a free agent because he'd been injured so many times over his two years. I mean, six times on the injury list over the course of those years. He played 16 out of out of 30, 36 games, regular season games. They decided they want to offer him a a, a contract that was laden with incentives for games played. You play all the games, you're going to you're going to be the best paid player in the league other than Rocket. But you don't play, you don't get paid. And he wasn't going to sign that. And Winnipeg stole him away. And so you lose the heart and soul of your offense, the guy who was the hero, hero in the Gray Cup. You lose the heart and soul of your defense in Chris Gaines, the middle linebacker who had to retire for health reasons. Uh, and they try to build an offense around getting the ball to rock it more often and that just doesn't work you can't you can't have the receiver be the focal point. Uh, so things went wrong the next year they were six and 12 attendance went down. They fired the coach Adam Rita while he was still the reigning coach of the year. Um, it just, the market lost it. Rocket lost interest in being there, wanted out. They got into a big fight with him at the end about trying to force him out basically because you know they, they were threatening him with breach of contract because he wasn't doing the off-field stuff they needed him to do. They really wanted him to just go away basically. So it did go to hell. And then the next year they were three and 15 and it was really a depressing, desolate place to be in the Sky Dome, um, you know? So yeah, it, it went from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows really fast kind of the opposite trajectory of the 80, 81 to 83 Argos that I wrote about the first time, right. Where you go from the worst ever to the, to the, to the, to the greatest championship team of my young, of my time as a young man, when they the team that waited 31 years, the Argos go from 91 to the magical dream season to shit the next two years, basically.
2: Yeah. Just completely opposite. Cause you had the building blocks yeah. in that in, in 81 to build to 83 you had yeah, not a whole lot left in ninety-three after what well, you had there the was case.
1: still lots of talent. I mean,
2: it was the bulk of
1: the bulk of the lineup but without Dunn and gains, yes, but the rest of the lineup was pretty much intact. I mean, it was a miscalculation to think that Ricky Foggy, as good as Ricky Foggy had been in '90 and '91 as Matt's backup, who played a hell of a lot and played extremely well, he was better suited as a backup quarterback than as the starting quarterback. It was just too much pressure, or something just didn't work about it. Um, you know, it, it was what 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 made Ricky so good was the fact that Matt was on the sidelines. I think, in some ways, so when you make, when you give him the mantle, it becomes way harder uh and so yeah they mean it didn't have to be the way it was um but man yeah it was almost like it was it was such a dream season that nothing's gonna top it and it was almost like the whole city and even the Argonauts themselves all just kind of said okay good you know that's over that was so much fun but but now we're sort of you know it's like it's somebody describes it in the book as it's like it's like the day after New Year's Eve you know you got to sweep up it's kind of depressing you're cleaning up the mess it's all over the party's over right so
2: Yeah. And one person that didn't really want to see the party over anytime soon at that point uh, was one of their co-owners, Sean Candy. Uh, Just having read through the book, it seemed like he had the time of his life while this was all going on.
1: Yeah that's the in some ways that's the saddest part of the story in some ways it's the happiest part of the story i mean john got to got to know the joys of being an argo owner and you know they've been around since 1873 as a football franchise and it was canada was only 6 years old when the argos were were formed and they've had a lot of owners over the years only one owner loved the Argonauts, the way John John Candy is in a class of his, his own as, as the man who really genuinely loved the team. He wanted to play for them as a kid. Um, and so he had the joys of a of 91, of going to every game and, and being around the players. And, you know, if they needed a cappuccino machine in the locker room, he got them a cappuccino machine in the locker room. Um, he flew guys home on his private jet from some road games. He just, it was, it was wonderful for John. Uh, but he didn't know that McNall's financial empire was built on fraud. Um, and so things started to go, go down. And he did he did put his whole career on hold for that whole 91 season. And John was a bankable movie star at the time. He'd made Uncle Buck, he'd made planes, trains, and automobiles. He, he could make more than a million dollars for a lead role in a movie. Uh, and he'd stopped, he put that all on hold for the Argos basically. And he was also a devoted family man with two kids and a wife. And so, you know, he had to sort of pull back a little bit in 92. Um, but he was still, he still cared as passionately about them. And then it was only around mid 93 that he discovered that, that McNall was trying to sell the team and had kept it secret from him. Uh, and he, there's a sad scene in the book where he's, you know, he, for a brief period of time, he's trying to see is there a way I could put together a, an ownership group to take over. And then he finally realizes he just can't do it. And then within days he's dead just a really sad end to a man whose name should be up on the Argonauts wall of honor. I mean, only an owner for, for three years, but well, you can, obviously you're not, your listeners are not listening, but I've got the John Candy poster behind me as John holding up the Argo helmet uh, at the 80, at the 91 Eastern final, you know, and the place, I mean, everywhere that John went that year in Toronto and all around the league, everyone loved John. And he, he returned the favor. He was the head of the expansion committee for the league. He helped keep the, he helped save the league. I mean, he brought, he brought American expansion to Canadian football in many ways. And while a lot of fans think that was a huge mistake, it bought the bought the league some time, and it bought it. It gave it some much needed cash for a few years. When if they didn't have it, they might have gone out of business. So John Wayne Greske says in the book that you know he thinks that the legacy is that John the Canadian Football League is alive in large part to John due to John Candy. And I think a, there's a lot of truth in that story. In that same sentence,
2: mm-hmm. and, and that's the same time with the U.S. expansion. Besides the money, they also got some practical experience in uh trying to chase that us tv dollar and maybe realizing it's not as easy as it looks yeah, uh, It might yeah, be yeah. and it's hopefully still informing the group as they go forward as to what they can expect if they it it, it is a very enticing bauble to go chase but it's really it's really only meant for two sets of two sets of football teams, uh, teams with NFL in front of their names and teams with NCAA in front of their names. So,
1: yeah, certainly in the fall, that's true. I I mean, I, there was, there was the, the, the dalliance between the NFL or sorry, the CFL and the XFL this past spring. Uh, And I think in large part that was driven by a belief by, by some owners, particularly the Argonauts owners, I think that uh, spring football could work in both countries and could get TV networks interested and excited. Um, whether that's true or not, I guess we'll see the USFL was, was made a pretty good go of it for three years. And then Donald Trump decided he wanted to go head to head with the NFL and it fell apart. Uh, the, the XFL was, you know, kind of flamed out in 2001. Uh, although it was pretty entertaining in its own way. And it had some, it had some, you know, merit to it. Um, and quite but they, a bit of
2: CFL talent. cross crossed, oh, yeah, over and they crossed yeah, right yes. back.
1: That's right. Well, and and, and of course, some of the talent this year has come up from from the most recent XFL. Mm-hmm. The Argos unveiled this guy, DJ Foster, on the weekend of running back who would never played a CFL game before. And he ran for 100 yards and he'd been in the XFL uh, like two springs ago. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's I don't know that that's ever going to work. We'll see. I mean, spring football, to me, it seems like there's an appetite in the US for football year round. And it's possible you could make that go. And you know, something that starts after the Super Bowl and ends before before the NFL season starts seems to me like it's potentially doable. And I think it might have been a salvation for Canadian football league, which is in my opinion, sort of too small of nine teams. It's just, you know, you get you see the same teams over and over again, and you can't, you can't get the big TV deal when you've only got nine teams and they're, they're playing in some small cities as well as some big cities. So, yeah, I don't know that they can ever achieve that, but they, they tried. McNall group tried to get an NFL or get, get TV money from, from the state. So they had a, they had a contract with, with a, with an outfit called prime ticket, which was a California based sports, network back in the early 90s but it didn't yield them any money really and you know as big a name as rocket was in notre dame when he went to canada it might as well have gone to to siberia like he just is out of sight out of mind right joe theisman said that in the book that when he when he left notre dame and came to the argos and he was the biggest star in canadian football for three years he'd go back home after the season the guys would say to him where you been what have you been doing right they just had no presence down there
2: no and it's still and it's still in a lot of ways uh, the same way, uh, a little bit more, a lot more exposure over the past decade or so. Of course, with ESPN having it all and having a lot of it on their streaming platforms, but a lot on their um, terrestrial TV well, channels yeah. too. They're, they're, yeah, yeah, true, it's yeah. a lot more of it's a lot more than it used to be. Uh, it, the, there was a blip in the mid '90s with the U.S. teams where ESPN two was showing games weekly. It was mm-hmm. it was kind of their big deal. It was it mm-hmm. was ESPN two brand new uh was running with the cfl running with arena football running with anything they could find uh now everybody's and now anybody as anybody wants wants any sort of exposure they can get on espn but of course um even in the initial days of espn itself uh canadian football was a was one of their first things they reached out for but um yeah.
1: Well, there's a funny story in the book, actually, about ESPN, because mm-hmm. uh, we, we now know that, you know, the NFL draft is this massive, massive production that lasts for three weeks on ESPN, mm-hmm. right? It's like, it's round one on Thursday night, and round two on, on Friday night, and then they get into the later rounds on the weekend, and it's a huge deal. It wasn't that big of a deal in 91, and, and so Rocket signed his contract with the Argonauts on a Saturday night, between periods of a los angeles kings edmonton oilers playoff game and the next morning the sunday morning the nfl draft was was to be held on espn and and so the the draft comes on and the first words out of chris berman's mouth are basically the biggest name is already off the board the rockets jump to Canada like it just put the put put took the air out of that balloon so fast right and some of the people in the CFL really enjoyed that fact that it was like man it's nice to see those guys eating shit for a while. and, so. and
2: I and that was one of my first between the skydome opening and the rocket going there it would those were some of my first impressions of what sports in Canada were all about. Now, obviously at the age I was, I was making, I was drawing some incorrect conclusions, but it seemed like a big. it seemed like this is, this has to be a big deal. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The skydome itself being the first of its kind, got a lot of
1: skydome was you know it was named stadium of the year by the stadium corporation of the world or whatever and it was thought to be like you know the the, the greatest stadium ever built what they didn't expect was that like a year later baltimore opened camden yards and it's like this beautiful historic baseball stadium with bricks and you got a factory in the outfield and all boogs barbecue and all that stuff and like the model of gigantic round domes went completely south uh and of course as it, and and what what we now know is that those those domed stadiums they're 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 built to hold multiple types of sporting events which means they don't really work for any sporting mm-hmm. event right it's no nope. it's neither a baseball stadium nor a football stadium it was a terrible football stadium yeah i could see for fifty four thousand people but uh, the, the most expensive seats at, at, at midfield on the lower level were the worst. The, the, the lower 10 rows, they had to put tarps on them because if you sat there, players on the sideline were in your way. You couldn't see the game. Um, and, and, they, and, and, and because it's a round stadium, the 55-yard the, the, the line, those seats are the farthest back from the sideline. So like it's you know it just doesn't work as a as a football stadium and it's not a very good baseball stadium either frankly it's nice that the roof can be opened and closed but it was a disaster for the Argos. They were second-class citizens in there from the beginning uh, and it was too big. The CFL was not really designed to be a 54,000 seat thing. Yes, there'd been a few years in the late 70s when the Argos drew 47 and the Alouettes were putting in 55 and 60 and BC place in Vancouver for the first few years, they were filling it. But really the CFL is a more of a 30 to anywhere from a 25 to a 35,000 seat league. And so you put 25,000 people in a 54,000-seat stadium, it seems dead.
2: Right. It's a a lack of atmosphere that makes it feel. uh, I've actually – I've sat in BC Place uh, on a really Mm -hmm. hot, muggy night, and I could just feel Mm -hmm. the – I could just feel it, like, the lack of energy. Just because uh, the heat had a lot to do with it. The play on the field had a lot to do with it. I went to a blowout. But it was just – you could just feel how – Yeah. How much yeah. it got sucked out of it. And, and on the other hand, you sit in the out, in the outdoor stadiums around the league. Uh, I've sat in BMO. I've sat in Tim Hortons. I've sat in Winnipeg. Uh, you could just feel the energy there just because yep. of the way it's the way the way it's set up. Right.
1: Oh yeah, the Argos are way better off in BMO than they ever were in Skydome, even though you know, the most they could draw in there is about 24,000, and they've, they've not come close to that unfortunately yet, uh, but it's a fantastic atmosphere. It's a grass field, and you've got the, the skyline of Toronto, and you've got airplanes landing at the Island Airport, and it, it, and even though it they might only get twelve or 16,000 people in there, it's loud and energetic. It was never loud and energetic in Skydome basically unless the building was completely full like it was it was filled with fifty-four thousand for the 2012 Grey cup which was the 100th Grey cup and yeah it was electric the argos were playing and it was an electric atmosphere that night
2: but you but needed normally, you needed a huge draw to make that happen
1: yeah that's right that's right
2: right no because i said i the game i went to to bmo at was twelve thousand people but you wouldn't have guessed it with the way it felt and the way it sounded, mm-hmm. especially when the Argos mm-hmm. decided to make a comeback in the fourth quarter and uh, sent me home a little disappointed, but sent everybody else home pretty happy. <laughs> was, was that a game against Winnipeg? That, that, that was the 2019 game, yes, where they came back Man. from I want to say 20 down 20,
1: 20, 20 points that came down from 20 points. Yeah. That Mm -hmm. was exciting. So, sorry, I didn't realize you were a Winnipeg fan, but uh, you must be happy about how that season ended. Right. Uh,
2: It it ended pretty well. And I would say I was, it was one of those things where, Oh, well they lost the game, but it was still pretty fun. So I, I, Oh yeah. You know what? I'm okay with this. (laughs) Well, and uh,
1: Joe, it's it's amazing that like, we've had back-to-back really terrible seasons in Toronto, 2018 and 2019 were both four win seasons and they had a lot of terrible games there, but even then, like you know, that just something about BMO that it, it, it's a fun atmosphere. And and the, and the and I haven't I haven't felt the fans turning on the Argos even when they're getting blown out. Um, you know, it's nothing like it was back in the late '70s and early '80s when it was like they were just dying to laugh at them and, and mock them. Uh, so yeah, yeah I, I've been, I've been wanted, to a lot.
2: They wanted something to be upset about.
1: Yeah, yeah, I've been to a lot of a lot of games that were that I went home disappointed. But I still felt like, man, the atmosphere was really good. Like if, when, when we were on defense, they were loud. And, we, and, and when it looked like we might have a shot at even doing something good, people got excited about it. Uh, and I've been, to, I've been to one game. I've been fortunate to be one game at Winnipeg at, at, at uh, IG Field. And that's a fantastic facility. Um, uh, that's just that's, that's the class of the league. I haven't been to, I haven't been to Mosaic in Regina, so I, I can't compare it. But I, I would be hard-pressed to think it could be better than what they've got in Winnipeg. That's a beautiful facility.
2: Yeah, I also have not been to the new place, but the old place over in Regina was something special too.
1: Yeah, it was. It had its charms for sure. I was there a few times, but it was every year. Every year there'd be a game where, where lightning would cause cause they'd have to postpone the game for a few hours, and everybody would gather under the stands, and it was just crazy. Right? And
2: then you so. just realize how little room there was
0: underneath the
1: stands. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> right.
0: I got two or three more questions for you. Cool.
1: Go in for sure, man. Absolutely. You've been sitting very patiently waiting your turn. There you go.
0: Oh, I'm just amazed that Joe's got my 12, 13, 14 questions. I think you read your book like five times. <laughs> What's uh... Okay, so you're obviously very close to this subject, you know, being a lifelong friend and whatnot. But I'm always interested to know, what was the more surprising or interesting things that you learned doing your research this time?
1: Uh, well, I was certainly, I mean, I was, I was, I I hadn't realized just how unprepared Rocket Ismail was for the, for the role that they thrust upon him. I mean, I, I knew certainly that, you know, he'd been, he'd been accused by reporters of being, you know, very, very taciturn. And so, you know, he actually, he actually missed the media breakfast during Grey Cup week when it was the Argos media breakfast, that sort of stuff is kind of inexcusable. But I, I heard a story from Wayne Gretzky that just blew my mind when he said, you know, like, early on in the season, Bruce said to 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 Wayne and, and John, you guys have got to talk to him. Like he's not talking to the press. We gotta, we gotta, you gotta teach him how to do this. And so uh, they had, they sat him down for the talk and, and, you know, rocket basically, but guys, I like, it's not that I don't want to, I just don't know how I've never had to do it, which wasn't true. Of course, he'd had to talk to the press at Notre Dame. Yeah. They were protected, but it wasn't completely protected. So that story surprised me for sure. Um, In terms of other things, you know, that's a good question. And I just, give me a second to think about it because I think there, I think if I were to, you know, come back to you in an hour, I'd probably give you a a list of a hundred things um, I mean, I was surprised to hear McNall admit that he actually his his plan was an NFL franchise. I mean, there had been it had been rumored, he denied it completely at the time he was asked it at the news conference when he bought the team are you here to buy an NFL team he said no 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 not um but he was he was working with Art Modell who owned the Cleveland Browns and he was trying to basically figure out a way to get the Cleveland Browns up to Toronto um and the problem was as he as he related to me was that the NFL didn't want to damage the Buffalo Bills and that's actually very similar to where things are now uh and so he had to give up on that dream so that that was a a, you know a bit of an eye-opener that he that he would that he really wasn't he wasn't looking after my best interest as an Argo fan, shall we say, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was that was for sure was surprising. Um, those are the two that come to my mind initially. I, I wouldn't be surprised if before we're done. I think of one or two more. But
0: uh, talked a little bit about this before, but do you see any parallels to the let's say the financial challenges the league was facing then and that they're facing now? Um, well, yes and no,
1: it's it's funny, you know, like the, the challenges back then were primarily in the small markets, you know, Ottawa went bankrupt in 91. Calgary was desperate to find an owner. They were, they were only, they were only six years out removed from a, from a save our stamps campaign that they'd almost gone under in 85. Um, uh, Saskatchewan, as I said, had done the telethons in the late eighties. Uh, the bombers and the Eskimos were were doing okay, but they weren't. You know, they weren't. They, they're not for profit. They were just basically sort of breaking even. Um, but the things were thriving in BC, essentially. Well, actually, by 91, no, even then, they were, they were having some struggles, too. They'd gone through a parade of bad owners. Hamilton was for sure in a big struggle. They were getting 11,000 fans a game in Iverwind Stadium. But you could count on Toronto being you know, pretty stable. They're going to be in the 20s or 30s, attendance-wise. The BC is going to be in the 20s or 30s. Edmonton's always going to be in the 30s. Uh, so, the, so it's flipped now. The model now is the, the smallest teams are the most successful. Winnipeg and Saskatchewan and Edmonton are arguably the three not-for-profits are arguably the three most successful teams. They're, get, they're getting quite a bit of success now in Ottawa and Hamilton, so that's, that's flipped. Uh, and then you've got the three big markets where you know Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal, Montreal having come back to the league in '96. Those are the three that I think are in the are in the, the most dire straits. And and really the one that's in the most dire straits is Toronto, which is crazy that it was the anchor of the league. I mean, you go back to the 70s and into the 80s, they were they were subsidizing the rest of the league. They had a thing called gate equalization back then, where the road to the visiting team would take away a part of the gate from a from a from a home game. And Toronto was drawing the most fans, it was was paying out the most money to its fellow teams, helping keeping them alive. Now they're asking for gate equalization or some other form of, of revenue sharing now to come into Toronto, even though it's owned by MLSE, which is a massive conglomerate. They own the Leafs and the Raptors and they're, they're, they're worth billions and billions and billions of dollars, but they're losing money hand over fist in Toronto. And the, the big, the big difference of course, is that the NFL and has just taken the Toronto marketplace over along with baseball, hockey, basketball, and to a lesser extent, soccer and, and music and theater and all the things that you can do in Toronto. Now um, the Argos are just not on in the, in the cultural they're just not on the cultural radar the way they were back then. So it's, it's kind of flipped. The model has kind of flipped. you got the small franchises keeping the league afloat and the big franchises that are kind of weighing it down.
0: Okay. Just one last one for you, Paul, what are you going to do for an encore? You got something else planned? <laughs> uh,
1: nothing firm. Um, I've got i I've got a, a couple of ideas for books that I think would be interesting uh, I don't know if I have the I don't know if I have it in me to do another one honestly this took four and a half years uh, more than a hundred interviews and go, hours and hours and hours and hours of research it was I just I'll never do a project quite this this massive I'm sure uh, but I do have a couple of ideas for books and one of them I'd, I'd be quite prepared to talk with the other one I don't really want to say anything yet because I I think the likelihood of doing it is pretty low and I don't want to kind of get people's appetite whetted for something I may or may not do and I do, I likely won't do this one but I think it's a great book that someone should do, and I would love to find. So I'd, I'd actually like to sort of be like an editor or a collaborator with somebody on a project like this. And this is the, a book about the games between Canadian teams and American teams. There were some over the years, right? The, the Hamilton Tiger Cats played the Philadelphia Eagles. The Argos played the Buffalo Bills. They they played the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Chicago Cardinals. There were some. There was some interplay between the leagues in exhibition games back in the fifties and sixties. And I think that would be a fascinating project to to really uncover the story of that. Unfortunately, most of the people that would have been directly involved in it are likely gone. I mean, we're talking sort of, I think it it ended by about 62. So that's coming up on 60 years ago. So is there anybody still going to be alive that played in those games? Probably maybe a handful of people, if you could find them, if they could even remember. Um, But I think that'd be a fascinating story. Like, how did it work? What, What were the rules? They played Canadian rules one half and American rules one half and what? what worked and what didn't work for the canadian teams which typically lost the games by quite a bit Uh, i think that'd be a fascinating story pretty limited audience would be hardcore football fanatics that would want to read it, I think. But uh, so, and I, I think it would be mostly sort of a, an archival research project where you have to be just, just sit there and look at microfilm in libraries and see what was written in the newspapers back then. I don't think you're going to get a whole lot of firsthand sources. One of the joys of me doing this book is that I had access to more than a hundred firsthand sources, people that were directly involved in the thing. And plus I've got an enormous treasure trove of video material and and, and printed matter um, to, to draw on. Uh, so I mean that's one of the reasons it took so long is that I've got I got boxes and boxes and boxes mm-hmm. of files that relate to the 90 early 90s and I've got all the games and not only all the games I've got hundreds of hours of news footage about, about the CFL back then most of which I'm going to be putting up on a YouTube channel in the very near future by the way there's a fascinating treasure trove of, of material coming I've been sitting there cutting cutting tape the last few weeks and I got unbelievable stuff I've just got um, um, you know the day that McNall and, and and Candy took over the team i've got four different networks coverage of it i've got the day rocket arrived in canada all that stuff it just it's amazing the the, the, the youtube page once i populated fully I've, got, I've been putting stuff up there but leaving it private because i want to get everything ready to roll people are people who love looking at old video are going to love this stuff Uh, So that's, I don't know, I don't really have a, I don't really have a a plan, plan C at this point, but I I don't think I'm finished, Uh, I, my, my feeling is that it would be, I'd really like to work with another good journalist or two as on a collaborative basis, rather than try and take on the whole thing myself, but six months from now, a year from now, I might feel differently, we'll see.
2: I guess I do have one more follow-up question off of something Maz asked. Was there was there a story or two that you just couldn't quite wedge into the book, but you'd like people to hear about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I had to. I had to. I uh, actually cut two chapters completely because I, I just felt these are I, the book's getting too long, and they just didn't really help the narrative. And then when I went through the editing process, I mean, I will say that my editor Ken White. He did a well. I had two editors. Don Gibb really helped me through the writing process, and then when I turned in the manuscript, it went to Ken White at Sutherland House, and Ken did a Ken did a masterful job. I mean, the book was cut by twenty percent. It went from a hundred thousand words down to eighty thousand, which sounds massive, but the cuts the, he used so much finesse that I don't miss. I don't really miss what was cut. Although there were a couple of little stories about the nineteen ninety Argos. That I would have, I, I was. I, they were painful to lose. You know, a couple. Of, I, I talked about that amazing offense in 1990, and there were a couple of there was a couple of things that happened in one game in Hamilton that were just crazy stories. They had this this story called the T Fake play, where where uh, they were going on for a, for a field goal try, and the plan was the kicker Lance Chomick was going to get there and set up and then realize he didn't bring on the kicking tee. And he was going to start saying the tee, the tee, the tee. And he was going to run, run to the sidelines to get the tee. And then they were going to snap the ball and throw him a pass. And it all worked to perfection. It even involved like subterfuge on the sidelines with a, the, the assist, the equipment, like the ball boy had a role in this thing. It was just an amazing story that had to get cut, unfortunately, because it was slowing down, getting to the 91 stuff. Uh, and there was a couple of things like that. I also wrote a chapter about, uh, about the, 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 uh, collectible cards war that happened in 1991. Um, I I worked for many many years for a little company called Jago, which produced Canadian football cards for about 30 plus years. I I wrote the backs of the cards. Players would players would would have. It was a whole different model. I mean, you know, Tops and Fleer and Donruss and Upper Deck and all those guys. They pay players money to be in the set. But in the Canadian Football League, you paid the player paid Jago to be in the set. You'd pay them 50 bucks and he'd give you 500 cards of yourself and if you wanted to you could submit your own write-up but most players didn't bother to submit a write-up so i had to write up the card backs and i really enjoyed doing that for many many years uh, and so 91 comes along and the rocket comes along and John's thinking, man, like for the first time ever, maybe I'm going to sell some cards. They used to sell a thousand sets a year and that was it. They'd only make a thousand sets and they'd sell a thousand sets. And that's the whole run of the cards. But 91 comes along and, and, and they decided we're going to go big. We're going to we're going to have foil wrapper packs and we're going to sell them in 7-Eleven in and all this stuff. And then, and then AW comes along, McNall makes a deal with this little company called AW and they, we got exclusive rights to the rocket. So you can't have rocket in your set. And so there was a great chapter I wrote about, well, I thought it was a great chapter about, about the war between Jago and AW. Uh, but again, it just slowed down the narrative. So I'd like to get that published somewhere. I'll try to find a home for it somewhere online. I, I'd uh, love to
2: see more about that. Cause I actually have both of the sets.
1: <laughs> oh, well, I should, I should, I should just send you the chapter. You can read it on your own, but. I should, I really do need to publish it somewhere because it it wasn't. I mean, actually, my first editor, Don Gibb, really liked the chapter, but in the end, he agreed with me. Yeah, it's just, it's just, a, just too much of a side note at this point. You got it. there's too much other stuff happening in '91 to go there. Uh, and then I wrote a I wrote a, a short chapter about a guy named Jason Calero. Jason was was the the ball boy, and then he became the assistant equipment manager. And he's had a career of the art with Yargo since 85. He's been with the team since he was 15 years old, 35 years ago. Uh, and he, Jason's a fascinating character Uh, and so i wrote a little chapter about jason because he was an important part of the 91 team that an assistant an, an, an equipment assistant was a big part of that team in some ways but again it just didn't really quite fit the narrative so unfortunately that had to get cut and at some point i, I definitely want to do when you talked about what what's what do i have planned i i hope someday jason and i will collaborate in some fashion because he's got an unbelievable story to tell as does danny webb the argo's equipment manager if i could ever get danny and jason together to write a book i think they'd have an unbelievable story an unbelievable book in them from all the things that they saw over the years uh, yeah, it, that would be that would be a great story that that real hardcore fans would love. Just one
2: of those tales from the locker room books you see, uh, like oh, all exactly, the things. Exactly, that would be exactly fantastic. I would read that. Yep. I'd I'd yeah. sit there and just read it cover to cover
1: <laughs> yeah yeah and I, I would love to do that and maybe when they both retire we'll do it or something right so we'll see but uh yeah so, so there you go it's uh it, it's been a lot of fun I mean it's uh, so, so to, ask, to answer your question about what to do about getting the book it's supposed to be in stores on on September 1st which is what next Wednesday I think or Tuesday or Wednesday um I don't have a copy of the book yet it's still like I, I just while we were talking I, I did see a little email across the corner of my my monitor saying from from Sutherland House telling somebody uh, the book is now printed and we're going to have it in our hands in the next day or two. So I'm hoping by the end of this week I've actually I could hold a copy in my own hands. Uh, and so in, in theory it will be in stores next week. Uh, in terms of in the states, uh, there's a, probably the, the best two options. you, you can order it well, but there's three options. You can order it through Amazon. you can order it through Barnes and Noble. Uh, But you can also order it through Sutherland House, the, the publisher, and if you do that before September 1st, so in the next week, you can get a nice discount on that. I don't know what they charge for shipping to the U S you'd have to, you'd have to check into that, but it's definitely for sale on Barnes and Noble on Amazon. Now Uh, I hope it'll be in some Barnes and Noble stores somewhere in the U.S. I I mean, it's not, it's not going to be a mass market book across the country, but maybe in Southern California because of Gretzky and candy and McNall, maybe in the Midwest because of rocket and Notre Dame, maybe Texas because rocket played for the Cowboys. I don't know. I, I, the marketing and and distribution is outside of my, my uh, expertise but uh, it's available now for pre-order and anybody that orders it in the next week, I hope we'll get it within a a week or two. Um, I'm looking forward to getting feedback from people. I I can't wait for it to get into people's hands. I know there's a lot of, a lot of pent up demand for this book from football fans and Argo fans. And it's a book that I think, I mean, I'm obviously biased. I wrote it and I'm obviously proud of it, but I, I think it'll appeal even to non football fans because there's so much stuff that is not about football, about business and culture and entertainment and celebrities and personalities. personalities there's just got a lot there's a lot in this book Uh, and i'm hoping that somebody who has no interest in the argos will pick it up and say i couldn't put it down i think that's possible
0: paul woods author of the book year of the rocket john candy wayne gretzky a crooked tycoon and the craziest season of football history due out to the public in the first week of september Thanks for joining us on the Bruce White Blue CFL podcast.
1: Well, thank you so much, Joe and Oz. It was a real pleasure. I enjoyed talking to you guys for sure. Maybe we can do it again sometime.
0: Thanks for listening.
1: Find more great shows like this at CF Pod Network on Twitter.